Good morning again. We are thrilled that you're here to worship with us this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we're going to continue our study going verse by verse through 2 Samuel. We're going to pick up today in verse 24. Remind us every week. Do you know why? Because we forget just about every week. That this is the word of God, not just the ideas of man. So we should lend our ears, open our hearts, and remember the beauty and power of God speaking to us. 2 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 24. And Abiathar came up, and behold... Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of Yahweh, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, And they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn And dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there. Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Please pray with me. 
Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning asking you to take this story from 3,000 years ago and bring it to bear upon our lives. God, we ask that you would show us where you are in the midst of this story and that we might be changed and transformed to live and love as you do. So come, come and give us of your spirit that we might see what is true, that we might hear what is true, that we might receive with our hearts what is true. Father, we ask that you would do this in the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and all God's people agree. Amen. So, it's our custom here to go verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we are doing that in this 15th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel. But sometimes it means that I bite off more than we can chew, imagine that, and that there's a little bit of important things left over from previous weeks. This is one of those things. We didn't have time for it last week, but I don't want us to miss it as it informs some of what comes next. So the rebellion of David's son Absalom is beginning. It's an insurrection that has been planned and prepared for, we're told, for a full election cycle, four years. And for four years, Absalom has been trying to dupe the leaders in Israel into trusting him, believing in him. And he's done, as we saw last week, the full politician's playbook. It's all on display. Suave, but insincere. Absalom has now gained the favor of the leaders of Israel. And so David has been brought to a place where he is going to self-exile. He's not going to be forced to exile. He's going to choose to leave Jerusalem, what we refer to easily as the city of David. David himself will leave. We saw last week that he, do, he does this both out of kindness and out of wisdom. He's kind in protecting Jerusalem and its citizens from the long and horrific destruction of a siege. He's also doing it in the wisdom of understanding who his true allies and supporters are. Anytime there's a coup, misinformation, and false loyalty lead in the difficulty of analysis. So now David has a chance to see clearly where the people's loyalties lie. These only avid supporters would join him right now. But there's something else that's happening here. And it's got two elements. The first, what is happening is a fulfillment of God's judgment and foretold promise of the consequence for his actions towards Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. So what is happening is a direct fulfillment of what God had said. Remember in 2 Samuel 12, 11, 
God told David, behold, I will raise up trouble against you out of your own house. Absalom's rebellion is fulfillment of that promise of judgment. So Yahweh's promised judgment for David's sin against Bathsheba and also against Uriah have fueled and created the judgment of God that brings about this consequence. That's the first element. But the second element is also essential. That God renders no violence to the will of Absalom in this rebellion. Absalom remains responsible for his own sin. He remains responsible for his own rebellion against Yahweh's anointed. We can hold these two truths side by side. Sometimes I hear my brothers in ministry refer to it as not uh, side by side, but attention. Sometimes human responsibility, sometimes God's sovereignty. You have to hold them in tension. I respectfully disagree. You have to hold them together. Absalom is responsible for his sin because God is not forcing or puppeteering Absalom in any way. He's controlling the outpouring of Absalom's rebellion against God and he's limiting its overflow and catastrophe. So this is fulfillment to what God has promised and Absalom is responsible for his own sin. We can see the apostle Peter, a couple thousand years later, able to do the same thing in a single sentence. When Peter is talking to the Sanhedrin, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says this. He says, this Jesus, speaking of our Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see how Peter willingly, easily puts both ideas together next to each other. You killed him and God predestined it. God was sovereign over it. In fact, before the world began, before there was sun or earth, God had promised this hour of crucifixion. He had promised the reconciliation of a fallen man to himself. There's no tension here. The tension is not in the text. It's in our hearts. It's in our unwillingness to want to believe in the sovereignty of God sometimes or in the responsibility of our own failures in other circumstances. I think for most of us, we rarely hold both truths equally 
in any or let alone every situation. So as we see this rebellion of Absalom, see our hearts. See your heart, see my heart, and understand that God is greater than all our sin. But our sin is still ours until it's Christ. And he pays the punishment for that. So as we see this happening, as Absalom's rebellion unfolds, it is a definite judgment from God, the consequence of David's sin. And, and God will use all of this sin to accomplish great purposes. So we've seen the rise of Absalom. Let's go into a little bit more of the exile of David. Remembering that, that David's evacuation is kind, it is wise, and it was his choice. So be on the lookout for the following four things in what follows. Look for holy defiance. Look for holy espionage. Look for holy faith and look for the holy God at work. Holy defiance, holy espionage. Those two words don't go together very often, do they? Holy faith and our holy God. So let's start in 24. Abiathar runs up to David as they're exiting the city and he says, behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. This is an amazing rebellion against the rebellion. Right? They hear of David's evacuation and understand it's Absalom's political savvy that has brought this about. And what they're saying is that Absalom can have the city, he can have the throne, but he cannot have the throne of God. He cannot have the holy furniture of our Lord, nor will we leave behind any priests to do for them what the law commands. This is an awesome protest. You can have political stuff. You can have armies and swords, but we're taking the Lord with us. The intentions here are beyond admirable. But listen to David's response. This might be curious to us if we slow down to catch it. The king, David, says to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. What? David, you know what that ark represents. You know what it was to delight in bringing the ark into the city in the first place. You, probably more than anybody alive, have joy in its presence because it represents the holy God and his communion with us 
and his willingness to dwell with us, to encamp at the center with us? Why would David send them back? Here's the answer. David wants no part of the fiasco of 1 Samuel 4.3. I know it was a minute ago. Let me read this for us. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. You remember how this unfolds? The Lord delivers his own ark over to the Philistines, and they put the ark in their temple as a sign of Dagon, the false god's power over God, Yahweh, Philistine supremacy. And Dagon keeps getting knocked to the ground when there are no humans in the room. And to make his point, God actually brings the restored deity statue back to the ground with its head cut off and its hands cut off in the middle of the night with no human there. But the heart of the Israelites, all the way back in Samuel 4, was not we want to be loyal to Yahweh. It wasn't we want to submit to Yahweh. It was, how can we win? Oh, these things have power innate to themselves. So let's go get the powerful tools and use God to accomplish our purposes. None of you pray that way, right? None of you come to church on a Sunday you wouldn't otherwise want to, just so you could stay in God's what? Good graces? I think grace is good. But it's because of Christ that you have grace. So when is it elusive to you? See, what happens is we desire to rebel against God. We probably do it more politely than Absalom, but we probably do it more often than we recognize. We want to use God and the things of God and the people of God to accomplish our purposes. Is that okay? Is your prayer life Tiny little coins being placed in the vending machine of God so that once you've prayed enough and given the right amount the right way, you can push the button and get from God what you want? Who's Lord? Who's the master and who's the servant? David doesn't want to manipulate God. David's restoration to power, should it come about, will not rest upon his possession of Yahweh's furniture. 
David wants and knows that his restoration will come to power, his restoration of power will come about because he possesses Yahweh's favor, not his furniture. Y'all, this is bold faith. Listen to David's reply. Carry the ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in the eyes of Yahweh, he will bring me back. And let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let God do to me what seems good to him. Now, there are lots of times where we might speak those words or words akin to them. But in our hearts, we're being fatalistic. Que sera, sera. What will be, will be. I want you guys to lean deep into this thought. That biblical faith, real, true faith, doesn't lead us to inaction. It leads us to action. We don't sit on our hands watching hoping for an outcome. We immediately get to work. Let him do to me what seems good to him. This is no case sera, sera. This is active faith. This is faith put to action. There's no fatalism here. There's no gimmicks. There are no superstitions. There's no attempting to manipulate God. No trying to force Yahweh's hand. This is robust submission. Everyone's favorite word. Submission. We love, I mean, our whole culture's been on some, wait. Not submission, but sub. Verging, right? Isn't our whole down with the man? Who's the man? <laughs> right? Liz and her brother growing up used to talk about the man as the academy. Right? Like the awards show. You know, when you're mad at the man, who's the man? Well, it's whoever gives out Oscars. They're the man. Whoever signs the biggest checks, they're the man. Right? Like, Who's the man in this situation? Who do we need to overcome? Organizations? Yes. Institutions? Yes. Structure in any form? Yes, yes, yes. No authority would be a fair battle cry for the culture we live in. Now, authorities can be incredibly abusive. Jacob has taught me well. Governments can't be trusted. That's why we have to have check on check on check for balance. For too long, our institutions have abused the people they're supposed to serve. I can get on board with that. But not all of them. Not in every instance. David is exercising a worldview that is very different from ours. He delights 
in this robust submission. What, what this means is that David is free from the burdens of manipulation. David is free from trying to con God or use the ark as a hostage for ransom. God will give you back the ark in its proper use if you overthrow the insurrectionists. David has no intention in playing games. He has no use for bribery. He will not use God. Instead, he will trust God. He will trust God in full, in naked, in bold submission. Ultimately, David is yielding to Yahweh. This is holy faith. Every one of you can say exactly what David cried. If I find favor in the eyes of Yahweh, he will bring about his purposes. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Here's the prayer. Let God do to me what seems good to him. Is your life your own? Are you free to do whatever you want, whenever you want? No, that's biblical slavery. You're a slave to the tyranny of self. David has no tyranny here. He's placing himself squarely in the hands of God, and then David immediately springs into action. But he does so free from the feverish and relentless anxiety of trying to play God instead of serve him. Feverish and relentless anxiety from trying to make all the pieces of our lives fit. It's exhausting, isn't it? And it's rarely effective. And when it's effective, does it actually deliver what you wanted in the first place? No. Real submission, true submission to God requires action. It requires faith in action. Real faith in Yahweh, among many other things, gives us three, three good gifts. One, freedom. Not the tyranny of I have to do only what I want to do, but the freedom to do as you should do joyfully. Freedom. Second, relief. Many of your chests are tight from the burdens of life, trying to live it the way your neighbors tell you you should, trying to live it always bathing in the discontentment of needing more. It's infuriating, it's exhausting. But biblical faith, true faith, brings freedom, it brings relief, and it brings energy. As you use the gifts that God has given you, you feel his powerful presence enabling you, strengthening you to forsake sin and embrace him and his purposes. 
David is going to experience freedom and relief and energy in his exile? The circumstances and the experience don't line up in our minds, do they? But they will. Watch. As soon as he says, let God do to me what seems good to him, the king says to Zadok, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from me to what? To do what? To inform. He's setting up his spy network. This is holy espionage. David is creating a communication ring so that he can get the info he needs to do what is right in response to all that Absalom is wrongly doing. David's like, hey, you two stay in the arena. Hang out in the palace. Be in the board meetings. And then what you learn, what you hear, what they plan, slip it to your sons because they won't be noticed. And I'll have somebody waiting. And then he points to the spot. And they can come and meet them here, and I'll get all the info I need so that we can figure this thing out. Because this revolt needs quelling. David doesn't sit on his hands. He engages his mind and thinks through how might God bring about the victory we need. Fearlessly. Faithfully. We're told in 29, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem. And they remained there. As soon as David sends the ark back, he begins to walk up the Mount of Olives. And he was weeping. This is what we're told in 30. Barefoot with his head covered and everybody who's with him has their heads covered as they go up. They're weeping. As they leave, David is leaving the city he loves, the people he loves, and the worship place that he has loved for a while. And on the way out, David then gets the news. Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. This is not big news to us. We kind of don't really understand the significance of this. But imagine playing a pickup football game with Tom Brady as your quarterback. Imagine Steph Curry showing up at the yard, deciding to be on your team. You'd feel great. Put the same shooting guard on the other team. How do you feel? This is like having Yo-Yo Ma volunteer to play the cello in the competing orchestra. He's a world-renowned uh, celloist. David finds out that the best thinker around them has been in this plot from the beginning. He's up against the council of Ahithophel. This is Magnus Carlsen moving the chess pieces around. 
David hears this news and immediately spurts prayer. Immediately. He hears this, verse 31, and he says, Please, Yahweh, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Make that five-star cuisine garbage. (laughs) How many times in your life have you prayed for a specific end? And God doesn't do what you prayed for. And yet what you prayed for was still accomplished. It just wasn't done in the way you thought it should be. The substance agreed with. The methodology denied. David's going to have this experience. In a few chapters, when we get to 17, you're going to see that Ahithophel is going to give wise counsel. Brilliant counsel. And God doesn't make him a fool or think foolish thoughts. Instead, he uses the fool, Absalom, to not take his advice. He doesn't need Tom Brady to get injured to win this battle. What he needs is Tom to have no receivers like Wes Welker when we lost the best perfect... (laughs) Sorry. You get my meaning? The excellence of the council will not change. But the foolhardy heart of the man in charge will get duped. The substance secure. The methodology bewildering. This is not what David is going to foresee ultimately. But he will see it in part. Watch what happens next. Immediately David prayers, and then in verse 32, while David was coming to the summit of the Mount of Olives where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him, but he's got dirt on his head and a ripped cloak and coat. Why why is his clothes all messed up and why has he got dirt in his hair? Because he's mourning the rebellion. He's saying this is wrong, and he's making his outside Accurate to his inside. It's, this is the reverse of hypocrisy. There's perfect union between what he looks like and how he feels. There's no pretense here, no veneer that everything is fine when it's not. So David looks to him and says, this is hilarious. If you go on with me, you're going to be a burden to me, said every parent in their hearts about their kids. If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city, as a matter of fact, here's your pitch. Are you ready? Sell this. Say to Absalom, I'll be your servant, O king, as I've been your father's servant in time past. So now I'll be your servant. And then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. See, David knows that he's up against brilliance. And so he's going to send in a spy, not under the religious pretext of serving the new king, but as a friend into the community to be undermining 
Ahithophel's counsel, which is ultimately what will happen. But do you get the sales pitch? I was, I was good for your dad. Let me be good for you. I did what you asked me to do, and I'm a good worker. Let me do it. Let me give you counsel. But David is already trying to figure out how to defeat the wisdom of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar, the priests with you there? You mean the two guys you already sent back? Yes. So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them, and by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So he's baptizing, forgive the pun, this other guy into the line of communication, welcoming him into the ring of spies to accomplish this information securing. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. I think the translation here is a little weak. I think instead of it being this friendly relationship of David's friend, you see the language there, David's friend? It seems to be more of a title. The friend of David. The minister of defense. The friend of David. He has a calling and a purpose. He's in the office if you will, friend of David, to gather the intel and to use the spy network to get David the information he needs. This is the holy espionage designed to dupe Absalom. Hushai's job is to try and undermine Ahithophel's wisdom. This is holy defiance. This is holy defiance. So it's a neat and intriguing story, right? Can't you picture a, a, a B-budget movie on this? We make too many of those, if we're honest. But what's the theological witness here? What's the witness of this text? I think it happens for us in verse 30. It's so innocuous when we read it. But in verse 30, let's go back. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. And all the people who were with him, their heads are covered. And they go up weeping as they walk up this Mount of Olives. A thousand years later, a thousand years later, the son of David will descend from the Mount of Olives, weeping, weeping over Jerusalem, weeping over his knowledge that despite the triumphal entry he's already experiencing, that in a, in a breath, in a heartbeat, all will be torn asunder. Not just in his crucifixion, but if you see this in Luke 19, sometime this week, open it up and read. You will see the true son of David, long promised, 
weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem. The same kindness that David exercised in leaving and evacuating and exiling himself out of Jerusalem. Jesus knows that a Roman general will not fail to siege the city. And Jesus promises that the mothers who are living through that time will be so devastated they'll wish they didn't have kids at all because their kids are going to know the destruction of Jerusalem and the death and chaos that ensues. Jesus is not weeping about the rebellion against him. He's weeping over the circumstances and sorrows of his people. But it will be in the garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion where he will be weeping and sweating blood. It's a real medical condition if you don't know. How rare is this, Micah? <laughs> yeah, rare. Jesus, in prayer to his Father, contemplating what it means to drink the cup of wrath for the people of God, to bear the punishment of their sin in the hell of the cross, the darkness and judgment of that day, squeezed out, poured out, emptied out upon him. When you were a kid, did you like punishment? Did you fear punishment at times? Could it bring you to tears, to trembling? Imagine taking all of the punishment for all of God's people in all of time upon your shoulders when you're innocent. That's what he's contemplating in the garden because it's no longer coming someday. Someday is the morning. The people to arrest him already on the march. Jerusalem has seen many, many things. But the true son of David comes to Jeru Jerusalem descending, not just the mountain, but from the throne rooms of glory to come and die as our punishment, to pay our debt, not to knowing parents, but to the perfect righteous sight of God Almighty without one drop, without one ounce withheld in the emptying of the cup of wrath. But he drinks that cup of wrath in calling it his glory, in teaching them on the night before it happens that the greatest of loves, that the highest heights of love are the laying down your life for your friends. This is what Jesus Christ does on the cross. He not only takes the punishment we deserve, he releases us from all guilt and takes with him, this is the doctrine of expiation, he takes with him all of the shame that we feel 
when we're caught guilty and trembling in our sin and misery. David is going to win this rebellion. God's people will once again worship him in spirit and truth with the ark present. And one day, we too will be with him. Not David, but the son of David long promised. And there'll be nothing left to take away from our worship. No more guilt, no more shame, no more sorrow, no more disunity, no more destruction. The holy city of God will be made perfect and you'll live there by faith in Christ. This is what's promised to us, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks. We give you thanks that you weep over our sorrows. We give you thanks that you see us and know us. Father, we give you thanks that you had an eternal plan of redemption and that nothing thwarted your plan through great sacrifice and devastating pain. You delivered your people that we might worship you every day without obstacle, that we might worship you in the fullness of delight, in the ultimates of joy. We ask that you would taste, give us a taste of that today and every day. It's in Jesus' name we ask, and all God's people agree.